and welcome to episode 48 of the Strength Ratio podcast. I'm Zachary Greenwald, joined as always by Kyle Klitschenko. Today we have on uh, IPF world champion, drug-free power lifter and strength coach, Bryce Lewis. Bryce, we just first, before we dive into it, wanted to thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you guys so much for having me. Um, so if you follow Bryce, uh, and uh, as evidenced by his introduction, he's quite the strong fellow, but we're, we're not going to be talking today about the mechanics of the squat or programming or any of the nuts and bolts that may improve your performance in your next mesocycle. Instead, we're going to be talking a bit about the coaching marketplace, the field of coaching, especially remote coaching as it's become popularized, I'd say in the past five, 10 years. We're also going to talk about the coach-athlete relationship and potential challenges to that relationship with the uh, popularization of the online coach. So Bryce, you had two posts that we're going to be referencing and we're going to attach to the show notes as well that we're going to kind of draw upon to talk about professional coaching and to talk about the coach-athlete relationship. The first post that we saw that really caught our eye was one in which you described uh, a uh, increase in coaches and in, in your case, you coach powerlifters, but we have a rise, I think we can all agree, in all fields in this remote uh, sector. And you have an increase in these number of coaches and with this uh, capitalist type society or this capitalist marketplace that we have, uh, coaches have to separate themselves somehow. Uh, and then if you add to that, what you uh, coined low social trust tends to lead, uh, as you say, to higher societal use of data as a separator of options, meaning is this kind of results driven? We, we don't get any of the behind the scenes uh, look on that or these potential relationships going on. If I have this correct, do you mind talking more about that and, and extrapolating your initial thoughts and what led to the post? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So kind of just a, a summary post of some observations about how online coaching has uh, started and I guess continues to to operate to this day. And some of the things that I guess are our minds that we might want to watch out for and um, just some of the artifacts that exist just as the nature of uh, of, of our industry here. Uh, as powerlifting coaches. Uh, so there, there's a lot of athletes who need coaching out there. And to meet that need, there's a lot of coaches uh, that, that kind of come up. And, you know, if, if you are an athlete and you're faced with all of these coaches um, and, you know, they're all kind of trying to self-serve and, and get your business, how do you pick uh, between them? Uh, well, the coaches themselves are trying to differentiate themselves from each other by saying, hey, these are results that I get from my athlete, or this is the emotional connection that I get, or this is the um, the kind of team environment that you can feel, or you can feel like a cool kid. I mean, marketing is a really interesting uh, topic on its own. How do you convince someone that, that they want to work with you? But ultimately, you are trying to sell a story of what this person's experience will be like. Um, when they work with you or when they work with your brand or, or whatever. So these coaches are trying to differentiate themselves and say, this is my image. You know, um, I'm the uh, Kabuki and I'm only mentioning them because I was on their podcast um, 
just about a week ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're the guys who do database velocity based training and, and uh, movement correction and stuff like that. You want something to associate with your brand. So um, being that there are all of these different things, how do you delineate yourself? Well, um, in kind of a mature system, data is is the way that we do. Um, these are the results that I get from my athlete or or something like that. This may or may not be the best way, but it's certainly one way of using uh, a separator of these different coaching services. So the, the difference here is powerlifting coaching isn't nationally funded. Um, you, you, unfortunately, athletes have to pay out of their own pocket for coaching. Um so that's certainly a piece of it. And these coaches themselves uh, only make money off of the number of athletes that they work with. They're not nationally funded either. So um, they're under a pressure of themselves to coach more and more athletes over time um, to, to raise the amount of money that they make so they can make a living. Um, and that has some unfortunate consequences. Um, sometimes they overcommit and they take on more athletes than they can, they can coach well. Um, and there's a number of different solutions that might fall out of that. Some of them, uh, good, some of them bad, but certainly, as I mentioned before, just some minds to watch out for. So things like, uh, maybe hiring new coaches, if you can't coach all the athletes that you work with effectively, or, um, you, instead of relying so much on the coaching experience, you boil things down into some numbers and say, Hey, is the athlete progressing? Okay, great then you go on from there. So you kind of reduce the athlete down to a set of numbers or uh, instead of the whole shebang, the coach-athlete relationship, weekly check-ins, nutrition, all that stuff that we see, you say, okay, well, I can work with more people if I reduce some element of the service that I'm working for. So I don't have to spend as much time on each athlete than I used to. So, you know, you see like Facebook groups with, you know, 20 bucks a month, coaching options, you get a template and you get like some group contact with a coach that, you know, there's a a variety of different ways people tackle this problem. Mm -hmm. Um, Or one way is, is just a reduced emphasis on the coach athlete relationship. If I, if I can treat athletes more as numbers on a page, then, um, and not really focus so much on the individual as a person, then I can work with more people. And I want to repeat here, I'm not saying this is the right way to go. Uh, I'm just saying this is one of the things that we see as um, an unfortunate side effect of coaching companies or coaching individuals working with more people than they can effectively coach. Mm-hmm. Do you, Bryce, see, because I, quite often, and, and I don't know as much, we, we work with people across varying realms of, of sport, largely though strength sport, weightlifting and powerlifting, although we work with many CrossFitters as well, that you know, in, in all of these sports, professional coaching, in that it is someone's career, is quite hard to either come across or establish it in one's own, in one's own right. So do you think that the, this gig economy where people are kind of spreading themselves across multiple jobs out of necessity can also facilitate this problem because right in this capital capitalist market they can do whatever they need to bring in whatever income they desire and i think a lot of coaches find it hard in this field to make it their express occupation where perhaps that the gig type economy would lead to someone having this very finite amount of time and resources to give clients 
even if they were at the door. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Um, we're we're in an age right now where you can um, make yourself, and you can uh, decide to be a graphic designer or a computer programmer or coach powerlifting athletes or you know any one of a number of things, and just essentially self start, and that's wonderful. Um, I think intent matters a lot. So um, the the best powerlifting coaches I've seen are the people who are extremely passionate about powerlifting who have dedicated some portion of their life and resources and time into the sport um, and are involved at multiple levels, so not just coaching athletes, but they are referees and um, they go to competitions and uh, do seminars and help with research and are advocates for the sport, that kind of stuff. Those kind of things show intent, I think, and they show a sense of sincerity that really separate themselves from others. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right that you, you have the option at least to do whatever you want and that's wonderful. But as a consumer, I think you want to look for those who, um, have dedicated some portion of their life to, to this and to making themselves better. Yeah, it, it does seem, and, and as we've grown, it's funny, as you tell that tale, you know, we kind of grew in this way where it started as just myself taking on partners and eventually co-owners and, and growing that way to make it a, a career and, and to make it our professional gig ha, has made us just in its own right that much more invested, right? We're not preoccupied with other professional stressors. All, all focus is here. Um, one thing that I, I want to ask you, and hopefully this might not segue you too close without having fully covered uh, the topic of this dynamic of the high volume of coaches in this capitalist market is when you work with athletes who seek out online coaching, it seems that they've tried something or whether it's a program or another coach and that something is not working for them. And I'm just wondering in your opinion, how often might that something that's not working for them be a product of the program itself or perhaps the relationship that they might need with that coach that would require that much more energy of the coach? And certainly that coach could be there to give it, but going back to your model, and it sounds like this is the one that you advocate for and that you provide is one of a high coach-athlete relationship with high communication. It. are you finding that most of your athletes need that communication because what didn't work in the past was that relationship or what that relationship could offer with filling in the gray? That's a, that's a good question. So I think at the, at the first sense, we're working with athletes. Um, you know, we, we try to coach competitive powerlifting athletes. That's the majority of the people who come to us. And as a result, I think the the number one thing that they're concerned about is results. Um, so they want to be squatting, benching, and deadlifting heavier weight as time goes on. Uh, coach, coach athlete relationship aside, if if that primary piece is satisfied, I think a lot of what they're after is satisfied. Coach athlete relationship is awesome and kind of help to uh, buffer some of the negative consequences of uh, you know setbacks and um, 
you know, just kind of keeping the athlete being an athlete for a longer period of time. Um, but I, you know, I wouldn't lie if powerlifters aren't concerned with competence and with, with really getting good at being a powerlifter. Mm-hmm. Um, so people who are seeking coaching are like a, um, a self-selected group in that you're right. Whatever, whatever they were doing before, it wasn't working for them that caused them to look for a change and, and to look for, um, something better than what they were doing before, whether it was the programming or they were working with a coach communication or, uh, you know, some type of conflict that didn't get resolution, um, all kinds of things. But usually the people who work with us are people who weren't getting progress doing what they were before. So that's kind of like a big piece of the puzzle for sure. And the other piece is being able to relate with the athlete and, and kind of keep them going. And, um, often there's a ton of things that coaching does, uh, but one of the big things is keeping them on the same program for more than a few weeks before they program yeah. hop to something else. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the competence is really a big piece. They they want to be good. They want to, you know, squad bench and deadlift more weight as time goes on. So in this program hopping that you described, it's it's a very real phenomenon. And uh, as you mentioned, their athlete is seeking something that – uh, will will give them better results that offers a relationship in which they uh, feel supported. And it seems that, and I think this will provide a segue to the, to your four C's, which will flesh out and you'll be able to define, but that it, you have extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. And it seems like there is a type of athlete who with whatever they've experienced in their past or with whatever is innate in their character, they might be very intrinsically motivated and a coach won't really have to do much rallying or convincing to get them in the gym or to have them stick to the program. But I think a lot of people will seek out coaching who are extrinsically motivated and if you have the example of, we've heard this from our, a good friend of ours who's been on the show. He explains if, if you have uh, an exercise uh, program and you're going in to do it with a friend and that friend is motivating you to go to the gym. And this certainly is in the population you work with, but this is as an example for the audience. If that friend keeps you going to the gym and you love that social aspect of it, you and your friend together, the second your friend stops going, you may be very likely to just give up or other similar examples might lead you to hop a program. When you look at the relationship of the athlete and the emotions and behaviors and thoughts that come together, do you think of any progression or involvement of the coach to help the athlete become a little bit more intrinsically motivated, a little bit more uh, motivated in their own right to fulfill their potentials? Uh, Yeah, definitely. That's a, that's a good question and a really interesting topic. So the, the more, um, well, the stronger an athlete gets and the more they compete, the more chances there are for extrinsic motivators. So these are uh, prizes, world records, national records, sponsorships, stuff like that. Um, No, no scholarships to be had in powerlifting, but certainly in other sports, at least. Um, but certainly the higher in level you go, the more opportunities there are for extrinsic motivations. 
Um, and you really have to do your best as a coach to reinforce intrinsic motivations in the athlete. Um, how can we do this? So, you know, just kind of bringing it back home to real world examples. If you have an athlete who just recently set a PR or is doing really well in training or something like that, instead of, uh, rewarding the actual number, uh, and celebrating the number either directly with the athlete or with your team or directly on social media, it's a good idea to reward the effort that it took or the motivation that it took, the dedication to wake up every day or to train all the little pieces that led to the outcome instead of just rewarding the outcome itself. Um, because that's the kind of thing that's better transferable to other athletes and the athlete themselves is more likely to think that the thing I did well was the effort and not the load on the barbell. Um, so that they can reinforce and go back and, and celebrate the effort themselves. Um, does that make sense? So uh, adapting more of a growth mindset, would you describe that as? Yep, absolutely. Awesome. Um, so it's, it's really just about uh, the work and not necessarily so much about the number. The number is great too, um, but you know, it could be five pounds up or five pounds down and it would still feel just as good. Um, so it's really about the process itself and not directly about the outcome. Yeah. I was just—I think I, I remember reading a really good uh, article by Eric Helms, and Eric is your coach still, correct, Bryce? Yeah, he is. We've been working yeah. together for uh, almost ten years. Wow, that's all, that's really awesome. That's program. a good what a pro program hopper, Bryce. Yeah, <laughs> we are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he had a really good article uh, titled "Are You Really Dedicated?" Uh, I believe that was the title. It was something around that, and um, he talked about how when he was. I think this was like 2010 time he was training uh, and he believed that he wanted to, I can't remember what exactly the competition was titled, but he wanted to win this competition and be the best bodybuilder that he could be. Um, and he thought that's what being dedicated was like, why would I do it if I can't, if I'm not pushing for this uh, ultimate goal to be the best. Um, and now his mindset, uh, mindset has completely shifted towards like, that's not real dedication. Real dedication is that I'm going to keep lifting no matter what because I love it and I like to get better and better um, and and best myself rather than this uh, motivation of oh I have to be the best. That's what dedication means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're you're spot on there. You know, th this is this is a great example and it's a good way to um, just kind of contrast these two points of is it dedicated to to do well and to win and for all the hard work that goes into a prep or is it the person who is a for lifer and is just powerlifting for you know a dozen to 20 years or something like that um yeah it's it's absolutely true you know i think something i'm trying to think of specific examples in which a coach or in which i in my own coaching career at least of late where I've been able to communicate to athletes and, and posit things to facilitate this, this growth type mindset. And, and back to what you said about the numbers, right? To have the effort be a, a high priority in this shaping of, of, of progress. It made me realize in just you using the word effort, how significant using RPE rate of perceived exertion, or if we were to say effort is in people's training. Where let's just say, and this is of course a specific tactic, uh, there are, are many outside of just the communication that the coach and athlete will have about the effort. 
But using RPE in one's training can help them detach a little bit from the numbers and provide many more opportunities and like real opportunities without having to just kind of, you know, how sometimes we'll pull PRs out of thin air or try to make uh, like yeah, this PR was with no socks and no belt and <laughs> no sleeves and no mouth guard. Right, right. But, but seeing like, okay, well, I, I've never done this for an RP8 for a set of five. Like that's real. Um, and, and showing that, I think that using RPE alone has really helped our athletes in that sense. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, I have no problem with imaginary PRs and stuff like that too. Cause like the more chances you can come up with to celebrate success, I that's think the better off yeah. your, your athlete's yeah. going to be, but <laughs> yeah, I've, I've talked about similar things like that before and it's always really funny. But yeah, I mean, uh, we can we can set rep PRs or the same weight at a lower RPE or, you know, even a new exercise in a lower RPE. <coughs> Excuse me. Yep. So it, moving into your post about what you coined as the oh, it's it's from literature, I believe the fourteen. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, guys. On, on what you found in your research on the topic about the uh, so-called four C's. Um, well, really kind of the, 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 if you can imagine on the top line would read closeness, commitment, and complementarity, and we can, uh, kind of bring these all together, closeness, commitment, and complementarity, uh, to something that is, uh, labeled as co-orientation. Um, if you can talk Bryce, about how you came about this, uh, in your research, how, uh, they perhaps tie together, as you say, mutually and causally interrelated. I'd be curious to know more about what you mean there as well. Yeah. Uh, the research being done here is primarily being done by a woman named Sophia Jowett, or at least she is the lead researcher in this field um, out of the UK. I have tried to reach out to her for a podcast myself because I'd be really interested to hear um, her direct experience as being a researcher kind of on the ground with athletes. Um, but over the past decade or a little bit more, um, research has been refining for coach-athlete relationships as being different from uh, other relationships in our lives because um, they're goal-directed. So, you know, if you are in a relationship with your girlfriend, um, there's, there's not really a goal. Um, but the whole relationship between a coach and an athlete is hinged on success or failure in um, making the athlete better. So that's kind of like the the goal of the relationship. And, and that makes it substantially different from other relationships. So in that way, over the past 10 to 15 years, um, coach-athlete relationships have separated in research from looking at relationships in other aspects of life. So we recognize this is something different. This is something unique. Um, and then what characterizes the relationship? How can we uh, define different coach-athlete relationships with the goal of improving them or at least realizing where things are breaking down. How can we improve them? Well, um, closeness, uh, commitment, and complementarity are kind of the three big things. And then later, um, Sophia Jowett added co-orientation as not necessarily the three C's plus one, now just called the, the four C's in total. So closeness uh, between the coach and the athlete is is all about emotions. It's the degree to which coaches and athletes um, – have some type of uh, emotional bond with each other. Um, they respect, they trust each other. Um, they have some degree of fondness 
um, basically, you know, they can, they can be in the same room and not hate each other. They, uh, respect each other. So, uh, there's, there's a more, um, kind of mental, uh, element. This is commitment. So this is how, how likely and how much are these two individuals, the coach and the athlete, uh, intending to kind of stay in this relationship for the long term. So uh, when, when you intend to stay in a relationship for long term, um, your behaviors kind of reflect that you, um, uh, you make efforts to understand the other person and where they're coming from. Um, you make efforts to, uh, view their actions in a way that is favorable and not like they're, they're, you know, hating you or purposefully evading your text or something like that. You realize, oh, they're probably just busy, uh, all these different ways that we rationalize different behaviors. Um, and finally, complementarity is the third one. Um, and this is how, um, how well they engage with each other. So their interpersonal behaviors, things like friendliness, easiness, um, how coachable the, the athlete is, um, how easy it is for the coach to give instruction to the athlete. Um, these things fall under complementarity. So how, uh, how well do these two individuals work together? And when you look at the time that this all takes, do you find that the four C's have a type of timeline to them? Does one come before the other? Is it all involved together? I, I think one of the biggest challenges is that when an athlete has a setback or there is a challenge, um, say a, a coach is at fault for their communication, it certainly can go either way, that upon that first uh, perhaps hardship or obstacle, there, there might be a uh, a lack of resiliency in the relationship to move forward. Is there an emphasis of pushing one of the C's to help the relationship become stronger or must they work together? And in working together, they just take time all working, as you said, uh, mutually and causally together. Well, it's, it's really a two way street. So um, there used to be this, uh, this drive that, athletes were essentially just cogs in, in a, the coach's machine or chess pieces or something like that. Um, thankfully these days, coach athlete relationships are, are more actual two way streets, more relationships. Um, I would say in crisis. Uh, so if there's some breakdown of communication or, um, something happened that the athlete no longer feels they are, you know, trusted and, and in the relationship and headed towards the same place. Um, communication is kind of the glue that helps you get through that. Um, but closeness is probably the thing that will break down and the thing that needs, uh, um, attention, um, more than anything else. And that's about emotion. So when we feel that, um, things have broken down, a lot of times it's because we feel a lack of, uh, trust that the other person is with me in this for the long run. Um, or appreciation, feeling cared for, things like that. It's interesting how much, despite coaching being all about the numbers and progress and stuff like that, that when things break down, it's about emotions. Mm -hmm. Have you found or, or are willing to maybe share, and I'm sure in your 10 years with Eric, it hasn't been PRs every single year, uh, that you might have a, a story to call upon or a way in which Eric maybe approached the coaching or that you both work together to overcome a, a time of hardship 
that perhaps you have now used with your own athletes or that you would recommend to others? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of times, you know, and, and Eric, I, I mean, I think Eric's biggest skill, um, you know, despite the the numbers and, and stuff like that is, uh, openness and willing to communicate and willing to be honest. Um, it's really refreshing how much that has made a difference, uh, overall, like both, both in being confident when that's important and also being like, I don't know what the right answer is, uh, when, when things are more difficult or asking for my own opinion or, you know, being open to seek help when he doesn't have the answers, that kind of stuff is really, really important. Um, but I can remember many times where like I've just broken down when training didn't move the way that it was supposed to, mm-hmm. or I had a really bad experience in a competition, or I've been dealing with an injury that just sucks and I just can't find a way through to, to pain-free training. Like those things are really big setbacks that if I was uh, with a coach who didn't support me or something like that, I might've fallen out of love with powerlifting a lot sooner or uh, you know, push training in a direction that wasn't productive. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of outcomes that didn't end up being this one. And I'm really thankful for that. You know, when you have these long-term relationships, you overcome adversity together and it makes those, those wins just that much sweeter, right? Cause you know, you, you both have, have worked for that. And, and, and in that you have become stronger. Uh, I, I think about how, Really, the openness and willing to communicate, as you mentioned, seems to be so important for the coach and for the athlete as well. Uh, We had James Hoffman on uh, before, and we spoke about athlete burnout. Mm -hmm. James mentioned how, well, when an athlete experiences burnout, something that he likes to do is help return the locus of control more internally to, to them. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the uh, programming is a bit more collaborative. Uh, maybe even, as James said, as long as the athlete doesn't go off the rails and go up like two weight classes and totally destroy <laughs> themselves, maybe we, we turn the programming over to the athlete for a brief period of time to help return locus of control. And then after a time, uh, James said, you know, the athlete will eventually come back and, and, as a team, the coach and athlete together can, can continue moving forward. And I think that advice on multiple occasions has served me so well, where rather than just trying to convince athletes why what you're writing is what's best for them, even if they're, they're fully understanding of that, but maybe they just want to do something different. It, it's just so good to have that openness to walk through that together. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. And I think, um, Bridging off of what you said, as far as burnout and, and stuff like that, athletes need to uh, be comfortable saying in the relationship when when something isn't right uh, and not feel like fear of uh, fear of some type of response or fear of uh, the coach taking it the wrong way or, you know, a sense of, of pride or, or scared that they're going to lose their athlete or something like that. Like we really need to be as athlete centric as we can possibly manage. Um, but there are, there are so many ways to build in, uh, athlete autonomy into their training where they feel like they've got control. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention is oftentimes coaches, um, (laughs) coaches forget that their coach can program more stuff than exactly what they're doing. So, um, 
they, they can sometimes feel helpless in in sense that they feel that they are just stuck into whatever their training currently looks like, that this is the way it's always going to be. And there's so many different ways to change training to keep athletes uh, interested in what they're doing and motivated and pushing for some new level of progress or something like that. Yeah. And that's so significant. I just had a talk with an athlete today Uh, because you can manipulate training to fit really any schedule, any period of time, as long as you have a good needs analysis, I think letting the athlete know that too, that the structure doesn't have to be as it's been and that maybe less at certain periods and more at others or just less for an extended period of time if life requires that, if that lowers stress and the athlete can be uh, compliant with that, well, then maybe with them just being more relaxed about this new schedule to accommodate other lifestyle things or injuries, et cetera that less could be more with lower stress around that. And, and to just have that flexibility back and forth, uh, you almost wish that uh, all prospective clients could kind of see through that window. But unfortunately, it's just that that takes time, right? And that takes trust and uh, just simply getting it wrong more often than not before you get it right. Yeah, it, it takes maturity for sure. You know, I can imagine some onboarding document that that kind of lays out hey, this is what you're entitled to. These are what we're trying to avoid. These are the tools that we have as a team. Some of that kind of stuff could be really good early on, um, just so that you see it once. Yeah, and you know, I, I saw someone, um, they direct messaged me this, this meme. And I, I think coaches do struggle with this where they try to convey a, a relationship, uh, something outwardly that will have the audience uh, perceive that they're building relationships. And I think the meme was something to the effect of an athlete's screenshot uh, where the athlete, I found it here, says, hey, thanks for being there for me as a coach and a friend. And then the response from the coach is, hey, I'm going to screen cap this and advertise my emotional support that basically makes this a sociopathic business interaction. And the athlete says, isn't that really impersonal? And the coach responds, it's a $15 upcharge if you want me to treat you like a human being and not an investment. So I think people are aware that uh, when they see this type of advertising, they know our clients are smart. And we as consumers with other things are smart to detect uh, these relationships. So the fact that you've been with Eric for 10 years, I think that speaks volumes. You don't need a a screenshot to, to share that insight. But uh, I think just the, the, the storytelling that comes with how the athlete and coach behave together will just kind of let a light shine in on, on what that coach is actually like and, and perhaps also what the athlete is like too. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen that, um, that meme you're talking about. I sent it to about six people. I was, <laughs> I was busting up laughing seeing that one. So. Oh my gosh. Um, so uh, one question, uh, Bryce, I had for you is in your working with athletes, I should say when you began working with athletes of your own, um, and wanting to develop these, uh, these, these types of relationships, uh, the relationships where you can be there as a coach to help, of course, facilitate the outcomes and ride the wave when it's good, but also maybe perhaps even more importantly, be there to potentiate further gains when things aren't as good. Mm -hmm. When you came up against this 
dilemma of wanting to give a lot of yourself as a coach, um, did you find that it was hard to continue? And I, you've spoken about this on, on your social media platforms, work on yourself and uh, keep in mind your own social health and well-being, your own training, especially as someone who <laughs> trains at a very high level. Was this ever a problem? Not a problem, but did this ever present as a conflict there, the client's emotion and customer satisfaction while making sure that you were still improving in your sport and as a coach or a human being? Those those two pieces at least are somewhat separate. Um, something that I do have to watch out for is... Um, I guess the word that I'm using for it is osmosis. So sometimes when I do a technique correction for an athlete, a little piece of that will carry over into my own training and it has no business being there <laughs> or, um, some athletes negative experience will carry over into, into like a self-evaluation of my own relationship with my training. So like just a, a maladaptive osmosis or, That's really you know, just a, a shitty way of carrying over things that, that don't really belong there. Um, so you, you kind of have to keep your coach's hat on and make sure that you take your coach's hat off when it's time to be an athlete and do your best to keep those as separate worlds um, to the best of your ability. But outside of those kind of extreme cases, and that might not even be true for all people, but um, that kind of osmosis, I guess, comes from like, I don't know, uh, empathy or or misplaced empathy or, or something like that. Uh, it's easy to kind of rub off in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you find that that uh, osmosis sometimes goes the, the other way as well, where like you're feeling things in your own training or in life that could sometimes affect your, your coaching? For, for me, that kind of stuff is more cognitive. Like, oh, I've been thinking a lot about pause squats lately and I might end up programming those more often than I would otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but not really so much on the emotional side. Like I'm not the kind of person who like, if I'm pissed off at my own training, <laughs> I'll take it off on an athlete or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, thankfully. Yes. But that kind of stuff does happen. You know, someone had a shitty day at work and, and they take it out on their team. I've seen that in, in basketball practices and, and heard that from mm-hmm. a few coaches here and there. And this might just be a little sidetrack, but I, I actually saw your, now that we're speaking on that, your post about, um, I can't remember the exact term for it, but like basically aggressive communication versus, um, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, just like uh, apathetic communication. And I believe that I read that people, like society sees aggressive communication as people like potentially be more competent, but the research shows that it's usually like the total opposite. Oh, oh yeah. So that's, um, that's slightly different. So that's kind of like, um, like, uh, being authoritative when you teach people um, versus um, giving giving autonomy to the students. Yeah. So basically who is in charge in the classroom kind of thing. So, you know, if you have student-led instructions and stuff like that, you are, as a teacher, seen as less competent, um, even though the exact opposite is true. Like it takes a lot to um, to have something like that function well and uh, and – you know, a certain level of professionalism as well. But the aggressive communication, I mean, ultimately aggressive communication tends to decrease intrinsic motivation and even decrease performances too. However, some people rationalize like aggressive communication is the reason for my success. And in those cases, it doesn't seem to have any negative performance effects on them as long as they've said 
to themselves, this is something I think I need in order to be a better athlete. Did you always find that communicating about performance or communicating about the process came quite naturally based on perhaps your own experiences or strengths perhaps outside the gym? Or did it take some researching or trial by error to find out the best way to be communicating with your clients and under the appropriate context? Uh, there is a ton of trial and error. So <laughs> uh, none of this really came naturally. Some of it I learned through um, through experiencing what I think is good coaching myself through working with Eric and through seeing good examples from some friends that I've worked with and uh, talking with athletes and asking them what they want more of or what's you know what's been the thing that really stuck with you over the past uh, six months or something like that. Um, and just kind of refining things uh, a little bit. It's certainly not perfect. Um, there's there's a ton of room for improvement. But uh, but yeah, anytime you can talk about more than the numbers, more than just what's going on in the gym. So if, if you're out there and you're coaching people, like an, an easy way to get started is just in, in an athlete's normal update to you, tell them to let you know what's going on outside the gym uh, you know, what's going on in their day. Otherwise, what are their stresses? What's their day looking like? So just ask for more information than just the training stuff. And that can start a conversation and say, Oh, wow. Uh, you're also into chemistry. I love chemistry. Let's talk about chemistry. Or you just find those points where you guys have some similarities. And that can be a point where you can start building more trust, more appreciation, closer bonds, that kind of stuff. Do you feel that um, a coach should, you know, maybe learn all of the programming uh, techniques or knowledge before um, then focusing on more of this communication and coach-athlete relationship? Or is this something that should really be grown together side by side um, as they grow as a coach? Or is it really just something that happens, like you said, a lot by trial and error naturally through the coaching process? So if we imagine some uh, curriculum for how to be a powerlifting coach taught in a university, you're going to have some sections taught about programming, um, some sections taught about long-term planning, uh, and certainly a few classes on coach-athlete relationships. But um, what order they need to be in, I'm not really sure, um, but they should be present in, in some way. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe something on fatigue management, there's some nutrition stuff, a lot of different modules in that uh, imaginary coaching course. Mm. Gotcha. So in your experience, Bryce, with coaching powerlifters, uh, have you, and as we've mentioned, there are different routes to take this, um, uh, this coaching, uh, online coaching uh, profession. Um, you can, like you said, perhaps just really focus in on a, a smaller group, high, uh, quality service and that perhaps might come at a high price point you hire new coaches you might also kind of titrate down and template things with open groups have you found that with the tenets of long-term planning and also just the tenets of scientific training principles that there is a type of online programming that you think in like this ideal scenario works best based on perhaps what is sound for the majority of the people, the majority of the time, and what also helps 
create some sense of camaraderie or, 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 or uh, team building between the coach and the athlete? Uh, well, not everyone wants to be a competitive powerlifter at the world level or a competitive CrossFitter or weightlifter or whatever. Um, the people that don't, um, who just enjoy powerlifting and just want to get better or something like that are probably candidates for, uh, a lesser piece of the whole package. You know, maybe they don't want to get all touchy feely with a coach, uh, or, or, Feely, I guess, no touchy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they just don't want the, you know, the weight of an emotional connection or anything like that. They just want good programming. Mm. Um, they want, um, you know, they want uh, customization. They want this to change over time with their abilities and stuff like that. And there's no need for the high level of uh, emotional support or anything like that. That's fine. Um, and there are some really good options out there for that. And, and that's a perfectly valid need and, and someone should be able to satisfy that. Um, but if you are a high level competitive athlete and you either are or want to be competitive at uh, the highest levels, that's your, that's your goal. That's your plan. Then really you should aim for um, the highest level of coach athlete communication uh, possible, but there's, there's a range of things and there's a lot of people who just want to go to the gym and want to train, uh, for strength and, and do their own thing. And, and that's perfectly fine too. So this isn't to say that everyone needs, uh, the maximum level of, uh, uh, coach athlete relationship that you can get. Um, there's something for everyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, my next question, I think that's a, a brilliant response. Um, and it's, it's true. Well, some people, just need to go in and gauge progress, perhaps even in, in their own lens without someone uh, uh, telling them the direction of the program or, or, or the intent of the program. They, they might not even uh, care too much about how they get from A to B as long as they can see that something's evolving to, to get them there. Right. And my next question is, so we focus a lot on what we've coined as training sustainably. And a large part of this aspect of sustainable training does fall on this relationship between coach and athlete and this style of communication. Um, with this talk of sustainability, or if we mention it, sometimes people think that they are going to get less uh, of a push, less of a program we hate this word, but less like uh, program or potential uh, optimization of their, their gains. But we look to really commit to this long-term plan and, and to their, uh, their potential growth, truly. Uh, do you take a sustainable type approach or mindset, whatever that means, kind of in your own mind with your clients? And do you even consider that for someone like yourself with what you've accomplished or other people who are looking to become world champions uh, or, or set records, do you have to get to these goals in haste or do you really uh, take this longer, slower approach? Because if you take it in haste, maybe you can't get that back. Yeah. Um, I, I do take a, a sustainable approach or something like that um, with as many athletes as I possibly can. And it doesn't necessarily have to, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be a slower approach. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
So the, the training for most of the time looks pretty similar if we're talking about a quote unquote sustainable approach and maybe a hastened approach or something like that. Um, the difference is usually um, the introduction of deloads or pivot weeks or pivot blocks or anything like that. Um, basically planned periods of lower training stimulus as, as a means of keeping the body and the mind healthy and attached to training. Um, sometimes people hate them. Sometimes they can't wait for the next deload to come around. Um, but really looking for athlete buy-in, finding ways to make sure the athlete is on the same page with you, that this is necessary to keep you uh, going to your long-term goals um, is really, really important. Um, so yeah, that, that's something that I do. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're taking your foot off the gas. And that's a conversation that you have to have with the athlete. I'm not trying to slow you down or prevent you from getting to your goals. I'm trying to get you to your goals. So going back to our our four C's, that's about um, commitment, the intention to maintain a long-term athletic partnership and that you both uh, agree that's what you're trying to do. Um, as long as you can have that buy-in and realize that you're both on the same page, I think uh, it's a really, really good idea. Yeah, I remember when <laughs> I first started working with athletes remotely, that was a very hard thing at the time, perhaps there wasn't a lot of social proof. There wasn't a lot of trust. These, these relationships were all quite young. Uh, as I was uh, starting working with athletes. Well, I, was, I was just going to interject to Anne, many of the athletes you worked with had some sort of uh, chronic injury mm -hmm. that you were helping them with um, mm -hmm. for their like, they're like, oh, I want this, this gone as soon as possible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, but then you, you, you know, I think that, that letting an athlete know that there are practices that we take in training that elite performers in any sport take founded in, in just <laughs> performance sciences, mm -hmm. I think is often new to people and they feel like it's a regression. And until you have the kind of results to speak for themselves, it's really hard for people to get on board. But, you know, you onboard someone, they, they kind of figure out the system. If they've never taken a pivot block before, if they've never deloaded before, it might be challenging psychologically at first. But once they start seeing progress, like you said, a, an athlete making progress is going to be a ha happy athlete. Um, but it, it, it is challenging to convey that sustainable is not slow. Yeah. Yeah, especially during those deload weeks. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's all about framing. Uh, as long as you can frame for them that, what they're going through right now is either something that all high level athletes go through, or, um, this is a place for us to prepare you for the, for what's to come. So instead of treating it for what it is, it's, it's a preparation for, you know, the future or something like that, or, or even a reward. This is your reward after such a hard training, uh, the past five weeks or something like that. Um, finding a way to frame it in a positive way really helps with athlete buy-in. Bryce, have you ever, speaking of communication and reframing, uh, played with changing the name deload to um, uh, like just a different name so that people don't think of it as, oh, this is a week of like non-training when it really is still training. I know some people out there have started to just change the names of things because people automatically have a certain uh, idea about them. Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, I did a poll in our Facebook group and I asked people which of these naming systems they preferred, you know, with, with no other context. It was, you know, 
like accumulation, intensification, realization, uh, or something like uh, volume, intensity, peaking, or, you know, different words like that, just see kind of like, what do people naturally resonate with? And I think people, people like the term uh, recovery better than deload or something like that. Um, But certainly the words that you use matter a lot, you know, like, a classic example I think of is when, when you're going shopping and you see buy one, get one 50% off. Like that's just the same as 25% off <laughs> each item, but it sounds so much better when you see buy one, get one 50% off. Yeah, that's really true. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I really yeah. I've that. never even <laughs> thought about that. That's kind of blew my mind, Bryce. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's actually important too, to, to recognize in this, kind of tying it back together, Bryce, and, and, and being respectful of your time, certainly, is the language that you use is so important um, in framing an athlete's progress and helping them overcome obstacles and even perhaps just helping convey why uh, uh, we have to take a, a certain route, which may involve or ought to involve a deload when they might not want to. We might pull our athletes and ask, well, what kind of language do you like most? If you are listening as a coach, really pay attention to that. The way you're communicating and the words that you're using are very important. And also don't expect to be perfect for all of your clients. Mm-hmm. I heard Bryce mention it, it is trial by error. You will make mistakes with clients. You will lose clients. And in those examples, you can recall perhaps what you could have done better and improve that in the future. And if you're an athlete coming into this fray, well, just know that what you're signing up for is a lot more than just trying to make that coach's uh, social media feed or testimonial page with your progress. You are committing to someone who will, uh, of course, support you through those those PRs and those competition wins, but someone who is also going to help you out when things aren't going too hot and perhaps when you're, if you are scouting for a coach near or far, you might want to just in whatever way you can try to get a sense of how those athletes who are currently on that roster feel supported uh, on that side of the fence with their, uh, their lows and how the coach is able to see them out of that. Uh, I think any coach can help an athlete achieve some form of progress but to do it over 10 years uh, is remarkable. To do it over two years, three years is, is incredible too. So the length of those relationships matter. Uh, and of course, your words matter tremendously. Um, Bryce, where can people uh, continue to follow you and, and learn more about you? It is, it is such a, a, a pleasure just learning from you on social media. It's, it's much more than just the barbell and, and the mechanics too. I appreciate that, guys. Um, I, I'm posting a lot of this stuff. I'm doing kind of a series on exactly what we've been talking about on my Instagram at Bryce underscore TSA. Um, also, you can check out our website for some coaching services at thestrengthathlete.com. Um, we work with athletes of all experience levels, beginners through advanced, and um, <laughs> we have a, a very high contact coaching option and a medium contact coaching option. Um, no, no low coaching contact option, but there are certainly <laughs> other places for that. Um, so uh, otherwise, uh, send me an email at Bryce at the strength athlete.com. If you have any questions and, uh, I think that's it. 
All right, Bryce. Thanks again so much for your time. Thank you. Bye.